Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast, Bits and Bobs from Across British Film, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry Barnes, the BFI's digital editor, and today's exotic recording location is a meeting room on the second floor of the BFI's Stephen Street offices. It truly does not get more wild and exciting than this. I'm presiding this episode over a menagerie of animal-themed audio. Take a walk around the cages with me. (coughs) Beast is the debut film by writer-director Michael Pearce. He'll be joining us to describe how growing up on Jersey helped him nurture his wild side. 45 years and weekend director Andrew Haig says hey as he talks to us about his racing horse ramble Lean on Pete. Human-pig hybrids run hog wild in the Science Museum's interactive film Pandemic. We'll be talking to director John Bradburn and the other side of the 80s. We'll hear about the filmic depth of a decade many would call the medium's most shallow. That's with film writer Nick Pinkerton who is an animal if you really want to stretch this conceit to its limits which I do. Anyway, first up, here's director Andrew Haig. Andrew, director of Weekend and 45 Years, has built a career out of subtle, interesting films about the nuances of the English middle class. Now for Lean on Pete, his third feature as director, he's cantered off to the Pacific Northwest and the hardscrabble world of dirt track horse racing. Lean on Pete stars Charlie Plummer as Charlie, a wandering teen who forms an alliance with Dell, a horse trainer played by Steve Buscemi, and Bonnie, a jockey played by, obviously, Chloe Savigny. They team up to help the titular knackered nag for a few more races. Our news editor Sam Wigley sat down with Andrew in the screening rooms of the BFI offices down here at Stephen Street. Ready? Off we trot. I feel like there are kind of quite big sentimental traps involved in making a film about a boy and a horse. And you could just have a close-up of a horse's soulful eyes and it would kind of cause a reaction in the viewer. How did you sort of manage that? Yeah, I mean, I knew I never wanted it to be like that. And the book is, is completely unsentimental. And, you know, I think one of the, the, the challenges with a film like this, as was the challenge with when Willie wrote the book, is like there's a certain idea of what a story is about a, a kid and a horse, especially the title of the, the book and the film is the name of the horse. You think it's all about the horse and it's going to be some like strangely sentimental kind of love story. Um, I'm not interested in that. And the film isn't that. Um and so I knew I never wanted it to be like that. And but you make choices to stop it being like that. You know, my the emotional register I like in films is not particularly sentimental anyway. Um, but you know, me and the DP talked about look, we're not going to have reaction shots of the horse looking at 
Charlie. We're not going to have close up of his face because that isn't what this is about. We're not pretending this horse is a human. This is a horse and it's nothing more than a horse. And it, it means a lot to Charlie and it, it gives him something within the, the story and, and, you know, something for him to care about and, you know, give him some kind of purpose for a, a, a section of his, his life. But that's what it is. It isn't anything more than a horse. Reaching out to find you. Happy. How you doing? Put it all behind you. Can't get attached to the horse. Why not? They're here to race and nothing else. With that said, how do you go about casting Lean on Pete, the horse, not the film? You, uh, yeah, you. I did meet a, a, lots of different horses, and you know, I just chose one that that, like, like when you see any actor, like you're drawn to certain characteristics. And I think when I looked at uh, the horse that played Lean on Pete, to me, he just made sense, and he looked to me like Charlie looked. There was a similarity between the boy and the horse. Something about their eyes and the way they, you know, I don't know. There was some strange similarity, um, and. It was obvious to me that he was the right, the right kind of horse to choose. I hadn't realised uh, before I started reading around Lynn and Peter that the author of the original novel, Willie Vlautin, was actually the lead singer of Richmond Fontaine. Did you come to his music or his writing first? Uh, I came to the writing first. Um, I hadn't heard uh, about the band. I didn't know who Richmond Fontaine were. Um, but after I met Willie and spoke to Willie and then I realised... You know, he talked about his band. I was like, oh, okay. And then I checked out the band and they've had a huge amount of albums and they've been around for a very long time. Um, so, yeah, it's quite amazing to me that Willie's so talented at both music and writing is quite a, quite a good thing. Don't Don't skip out Without taking me. So, what was it about the novel that interested you? I fell in love with it when I read it, and um, it's it's it wasn't so much about uh, the world of the story. It wasn't about horse raising. It certainly wasn't really about the horse. Um, it was just about this central character of Charlie and what he goes through and what he needs and what he wants and what it says both about him and I suppose about all of us in general about what we need in order to to get on with our lives and even begin to make the most of our lives and that kind of really uh, spoke to me and I had a huge kind of affinity for this kid and felt like I understood him and desperately wanted to care for him and I think I wanted to make a film that that the audience felt the same way I suppose um understood this kid and at the same time desperately wanted to try and help him i was browsing uh, letterboxd reviews of the film i don't, don't know if you ever do that god what are you doing that for <laughs> and one of the more popular ones said that um he'd read and thinks there are hints in the film that suggest charlie's gay and that had sort of deepened the kind of emotional impact of the film for for him do you buy that uh i don't think that there's uh for me personally i put so much of myself into the understanding of a character that he could easily be gay certainly and I've spoken to kind of gay people who understand that who feel that here is a kid that isn't you know hasn't found his place in the world and is scared of being honest and is alone and terrified in that aloneness and searching for something that's going to make him feel safe and I think that's certainly 
feels to me that that makes sense from a gay perspective and this a, a critic did ask me or an interview asked me why are you not doing a story about a gay person anymore and i did turn around and say why do you assume that charlie isn't gay like there's no reason to assume he's straight like charlie could easily be gay um and i think that's quite interesting because he's certainly not a traditional you know you know american straight kid that you would normally get in these kind of films he's a really sensitive kind of guy and i think that maybe that sometimes throws people a little bit off balance and i like the fact if people want to think charlie's gay that's great like you know there was certainly things that resonated to me on that level so if other people do that's fine too when you don't have anywhere else to go you're kind of stuck do you guys think i could get a job around here yeah there's a lot of jobs for homeless kids i'm not homeless so you're a runaway no. okay charlie where are your parents after the sort of intimate chamber feel of 45 years and, and weekend, this feels much more expansive. Um, did that make it more difficult to direct? Uh, not really. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's true that, that both weekend and 45 years have uh, kind of, you know, a lot of it's just in houses and in smaller environments. But t- to me, uh, like, it's always about what those environments mean to a character. So shooting people in a room it's the same as shooting people in a landscape. It's like, how do they respond and react to the world around them? You know, whether it is, you know, the Oregon desert or whether it's, you know, a field in Norfolk or whether it's a street in Nottingham, you know, I want to film my characters in relationship to that environment and try and explore how that environment affects them emotionally um, throughout the story. So I, my way of like thinking about those scenes is pretty much the same um and so it doesn't you know technically maybe it's a little bit more exciting to be out somewhere different than not in a house all the time or just in a street but it doesn't take too much kind of difference i don't think with your first few films it felt like we'd really discovered a kind of great new british filmmaker have we lost you to america now it's so weird that thing and i do feel like it's been really fascinating to me like uh, you know in america no one worries about like the fact I've made an American film, it's like, oh, it's really interesting. You've come here. And then a lot of like British people are like, oh, what have you done? Like, how have you done this? You're supposed to be a British filmmaker. I mean, to me, as I said before, it's like this film was set in America because it's set in America. Like, I've got other films I'm working on that are set in England. It's like, I'm not, I'm certainly not planning to like only make films in America again. It's like, if the story is right, then I'll do it in America. And if it's not, I'll do it here. And if it's something else, I'll do it somewhere else. So I don't, it's, you know, to me, you know, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Lean on Pete director Andrew Haig talking to the BFI Sam Weekly. Lean on Pete, co-founded by the BFI, is released in the UK on April 27th. Next up, the scariest homoporcine fusion since September 2015. Pandemic is an interactive choose-your-own-adventure film in which you, the audience, are asked to take the role of a geneticist hoping to develop a pig-human hybrid to grow donor organs for a world stricken by a devastating bout of heart disease. The film's director is John Bradburn. So John, what is Pandemic? Pandemic is an interactive film. It was a commission from the Science Museum in London as a reaction to 
the Frankenstein Festival that was running two weekends ago. So it's a modern retelling of Frankenstein. The film itself is about a pandemic of viral myocarditis, which results in lots of people getting heart failure. So there's a big need for donor organs that can't be provided by anyone, uh, any set of donors, because the number of donors would be enormous. So the group of geneticists that you're involved with are creating half-pig half-human, and that percentage of DNA is one of the key questions, hybrid to provide donor hearts. We're working blind. We don't know what areas to remove and what to keep. Well, how accurate are you trying to be? We're trying to find the exact area that defines... Increase the level of human DNA overall. Make it 60% more chance it'll work. You can't just do that. We can do whatever we like. The whole creature, not just the heart. Even if the resulting embryo was viable, 60% is more human than pig. As an audience member, you are asked to make binary decisions, yes or no, in lots of moral situations. What's really interested me was to make, like a choose-your-own-adventure book, but you're not choosing whether or not to hit an orc or run away from a dragon. You're making a really moral decision that's going to have a long-term impact that you're going to have to watch in a cinema play out and accept the effect of your action. So a lot of the impact of your decisions are deliberately clouded to you when you're making the decision to see, to get more of a a reaction from the audience, really, to make them realise that what I think is a binary decision is going to have almost chaotic implications. I was interested in the decision not being, you've decided to do this and you get this or that. You've decided to do this, but actually this thing you never really thought of is going to come out of left field because of your decision and really throw you off in a totally different direction. Just like real life. Just like real life (laughs) being the idea, yeah. Now, you've already had it play at the Science Museum, as you said, and it'll be online soon. I just wondered from the the people who've played it so far, are the people who visit the Science Museum, do they tend to be the rationalists or are they idealists? What kind of decisions were they making and what what did they lead to? Without too many spoilers. Uh, Almost everyone were... So all of the groups, bar one, really chose the idealist decisions. They chose the decisions that were the least, I think, discomforting to them in the short term that felt the kindest to the creatures that they were looking after and these quite abstract numbers that they kept seeing of the dead affected them but they were much more concerned about the immediate interactions that they would have to deal with in the short term. I think it would be really interesting to get a group of scientists together to play it to see if they would be colder in inverted commas um, and be far more focused on the end result of what these creatures were there to achieve rather than a group of scientifically interested lay people who the general kind of science museum audience is but mostly people were very moral and very idealistic and as such the film as scripted punishes them for that <laughs> you dark soul yeah, yeah. yeah. I realised quite how dark and disturbing I am as a human being while writing this there's nowhere else to get funding. Then maybe we shouldn't do this. A pig-human hybrid. Lots of people are going to die because of your decision. If we did this, then what is the cost to us as human beings? If we didn't do it, if we just looked on, then what's the cost? We had a really basic red and white card system in the museum screenings. What that did was it allowed the audience to see 
how everyone else in the audience was voting. So we had this really interesting group effect that people would quite quietly make a decision and look around to see how everyone else was going. And there was quite a lot of decision changing to go with a group. Even within that, there were subgroups. There was a great group of teenage boys who turned up who just made the opposite decision to everyone else, who deliberately made the opposite decision. So it was interesting that all of the decisions people made were visible to everyone else to see how the group was working, and I don't think people wanted to stand out that much. One group, really early on, chose two no's in a line, which meant the super moral answer of I'm not even going to continue with the research which meant it lasted five minutes. So I then said to them, we can go back in if you want and see what would happen. Then they became the most immoral group of people I'd ever seen who chose the worst, not the worst decisions, but the most horrible decisions. And when we talked about it at the end, they said, well, we proved we were moral at the beginning. Then we could go back in with a kind of free-for-all ability to choose any horrific experimental decision we wanted to put uh, the creatures through with a kind of impunity. That was really interesting. I suppose the one shame of how I set it up at the Science Museum was we couldn't pull out much useful data. When it's online, we'll be able to get a lot more interesting information from it to see how differently things like age and time spent with it affect audiences' reaction to yeah, it. Yeah. It is fascinating that people tend to graft their empathy onto the things that are closest to them. But yeah. you keep calling them creatures, and mm. they are. They're, they're constructed yeah. mm. specifically to help the people we don't see yeah. that we can't empathise with because yeah. we haven't, literally haven't seen them. Yeah, so, so all, of the, all of the people affected are represented through numbers. They are just cold numbers and cold facts. Um, and the creatures, you see one element of a creature at one point, which I won't talk about because it's a key moment, but um, you are so physically involved with them and the way in which we shot it was to make it feel as if they were really physically present that the, the decision-making is always swayed to this creature in front of you. We filmed in a, um, a disused hospital, uh, and we actually filmed in the disused children's ward, so it had all of these stickers on the walls of uh, giraffes and monkeys playing around. So there's, there's all those kind of terribly disturbing things about you know children and growing and having to sacrifice them at some terrible point um, that plays into it as well, yeah. It's fascinating as well that despite the kind of fancy medium you're working in, it comes back to that fundamental filmmaking thing of empathy, character, yeah. making a connection with the mm. people you're watching. And that, that's really interested me in the writing process, that yes, it's interactive, but it's still a character, a character's journey and their decisions. And it's incredibly freeing and incredibly exciting to be able to say... Um, I've made this character do this. Well, what if they did something else? Every time you write a normal script, you're stuck with their single decisions. Whereas with this, it's, oh, great, what would happen if they did entirely the opposite? I can go and explore that and film it and see what happens and then play with it. So in lots of ways, there are probably about, I think there's 16, maybe 24 different films you could watch from all of the different options and get a totally different feel of it and that's really freeing as a writer and a director to be able to play with that it's like you've unlocked the multiverse it is yeah it's kind of, <laughs> I, I had a terrible stray thought that it might be like quantum filmmaking in some strange <laughs> way but I'd never actually say that out we'll like. give you a few more years yeah, to yeah, do yeah, that yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, work, I'll work on that and then I'll get back to you director John Bradburn there you too can callously send the majority of humanity to their doom by playing Pandemic on the film's website and I'll link to that page on our SoundCloud account
Next, we're going back to the 80s, more specifically, the other side of the 80s, a series of films showing at the BFI South Bank in May that focuses on the alternative film scene that grew away from the bright lights of the blockbusters. Film writer Nick Pinkerton's feature, which shares the name of the season, will run as the cover piece of next month's Sight and Sound magazine. I rang Nick in New York, the sirens are a dead giveaway, and started our conversation by asking him to explain why he's putting forward the idea that the 80s were more than... And... I'll be back. And... Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. We know that there is some kind of correlation, that we have some sense of what say, in American cinema, the late 1960s are all about, and what, say, the 1970s are all about. In fact, these eras don't follow any tried-and-true guidelines, and though there is some kind of obscure correspondence between what is happening in the larger socio-political scene and the sort of films that get made, uh, it's not as though the moment that for example, Ronald Reagan takes office, uh, you get this complete sea change in the sort of film projects that are being uh, run through. It's a very human impulse, though, isn't it, to kind of pigeonhole things from a certain era just by dint of their year of release as narratively similar. And I wondered if part of your thinking was to try and, I guess, debunk the stereotype of what we think 80s cinema is, the kind of typical example being a John Hughes movie or a Steven Spielberg film. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's definitely the impulse behind this season of programming is to highlight the fact that there's an enormous amount of filmmaking activity in the United States and the programming in this season is just really the tip of the iceberg. An enormous... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P amount of programming that doesn't correlate to certain uh, sorts of films that we think of as being classically 80s movies. Um, and I should say, I mean, with regards to sort of debunking that impulse, I'm completely susceptible to it, as I think we all are to a certain extent. Like, I certainly am 
inclined to think of certain films as being 70s style movies regardless of if they were actually released in the 1970s i mean i think uh, ivan passer's cutter's way is one of the instances that i point out of a movie that though technically released in the 1980s feels to me completely to to its marrow 1970s this for instance is a tomato food huh yeah i remember food people used to have to eat it during the prohibition didn't they Occasionally for days on end. Can I just check before we go any further? I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you and what's your kind of background? Because that's obviously going to reflect how you feel about this era of cinema. It's a funny thing because I was born, I actually slipped my birthday into the piece because I was born on the day of Ronald Reagan's election, November 5, <laughs> 1980. Uh, and my mother's birthday uh, is November 6th and she always said that she wanted us to have the same birthday, but she was so completely appalled by the news that I slithered out <laughs> a day early. Uh, but yeah, uh, my my lifespan corresponds exactly uh, to the beginning of the Reagan revolution. That's I enter the world at the dawning uh, of Morning of America. There's a kind of broader point to the piece as well. I just wondered if I could just quickly read you a quote and get you to respond to it. This is from the piece itself. It says, The once essential act of social distinction through subculture identification dwindled with the internet's partition-busting presence. And that, to me, felt very important, that these films, uh, both of the kind of the mainstream and the counterculture, were being released at a time when people would still have to, I guess, seek out other film, other fans. And it wasn't easy to be uh, into many things all at the same time. And the internet seems to have made us fans of everything, and there's no shame or distinction in that. Does that make sense? And, and what, how do you feel about that? It's funny because... I was writing shortly before this piece uh, something with regards to Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One, which is a movie that, of course, is very, very steeped in the like pop cultural detritus of the 1980s, and was writing really about this same subject, the idea that um, the internet and the coming of Web 2.0 is really the point at which you get this breakdown of a dynamic which has basically driven the way that we think, at least in the United States and I think in the West as a whole, uh, this dynamic that's driven the way that we think about culture, which is this sort of dichotomy of a mainstream and a counterculture or an other, an other culture, an underground. He's just doing it to get a rise out of you. Just ignore him. Sweets? You couldn't ignore me if you tried. And I think that basic oppositional dynamic, I don't know if it breaks down entirely, but it's certainly really complicated um, by the coming of the internet. The fault lines are really showing through the 1990s, and I think definitely once you reach the threshold of the 21st century, it ceases to be a really effective way to think about culture. But I think the 1980s do look, from at least this vantage point, like the last hurrah of a really purely drawn which side are you on relationship between a mainstream and a counterculture? I wonder if part of that, I mean, I was born in 1983, and I, I, I wonder if part of that, that we weren't really there at the time, can make us 
more nostalgic for that era than would seem reasonable in some ways because it, you start your piece with a, a quote from the replacements the the 80s uh, alt rock band and then there's other bands similar to them i could say someone like fugazi who built themselves a career and almost a pop career out of nothing and handled themselves and there's a kind of a real sense of pride in being fans of those bands because of what they are seen to represent, even if it's sold on a wider stage. Well, I mean, we're all, I think, doomed to a certain degree to run the hardware that we're handed at birth. And I think that, you know, that basic, the basic precept of being born into a world where you have a sort of countercultural option or you have a go with the crowd option, and I know that that's an incredibly simplistic way of looking at it, but that is the hardware that I was installed, and along with it, all of these creeds about, you know, not selling out, and, you know, DIY, and doing your own thing, and, you know, staying out of, uh, staying out of the mainstream so-called, all of this stuff is very hardwired into me, and all of it, I think, doesn't mean a hell of a lot to anybody who was born, say, in 1990 or afterwards, or at least is interpreted very, very differently. And that's not, there's no value judgment implicit in this. I mean, in many ways, I recognize that I'm running like a very antiquated system. And there's no trade-ins. There's no trade-ins, no. Just run this thing till it uh, ceases functioning. I wondered if one of the positives of it, though, was that it seems like, particularly in the way that we write about culture now and write about film, there, there's less of a formality to it in many places, in that it's understood that film uh, never did, but perhaps more so than ever, never stands alone and is part of other media around it. And I'm thinking about people like, I guess, Sam Donsky, who, who writes very much about crap pop but in a serious way, in a way that's very considered as well, um, despite being kind of lighthearted. And that, to me, couldn't have existed at any other time. You need the internet to get that kind of voice to even um, resonate with anybody. I hope that that's actually the case. I think the very nature of being dependent on the internet, which most of us at this point to some degree are, kind of rewires your brain to do a different kind of different kind of thinking, which is very much a hot-linked kind of thinking, which allows you to make, I think, these sort of sharp parallel moves that might not otherwise have occurred, um, because you can move so fluidly from one thing to another while browsing. I think that that can't help but influence the way in which criticism is written or the way in which we think about culture, there's a, a much greater ability to make sort of out there connections, which I think is very much attributable to being online for a dozen hours a day and being accustomed to that sort of uh, 
hot link leapfrogging from subject to subject to subject. Can I just ask you finally, I want you to make a, a leap of your own here. Imagine we're 30 years in the future and you're having to tell someone what the films of the Trump era are that represent where we are. What would what would they be? I don't know that we've seen them yet, again, because because the nature of popular culture in these United States has never been determined exactly from the top down. The example that I use is the classic Soviet socialist realism. Uh, like certainly, certainly the political atmosphere of uh, the country seeps into films, but it's not as though the moment that Donald John Trump took office uh, took out a big rubber stamp and uh, signed some documentation determining what the content of motion pictures in the Trump era will be. In hindsight, I could say that, uh, I don't know, whatever that piece of shit movie starring like Navy SEALs as themselves was was <laughs> predictive of uh, Trump or, I, you know, I don't know, or that No Country for Old Men reflected uh, a increasing disease with our neighbors to the south, which uh, is a harbinger of wall building. Sounds like you're building um, up to your next piece, Nick. Yeah, no. <laughs> if I write this, come punch me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Pinkerton is a film writer. His new piece for Sight and Sound on the other side of the 80s is in the next issue. And the other side of the 80s season runs throughout May at the BFI South Bank. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Yeah, total pleasure. And that issue of Sight and Sound is available digitally from Monday 30th of April and will be on newsstands from May 3rd. And finally to Beast. Writer-director Michael Pierce's debut feature stars Jessie Buckley as Moll, a troubled young woman stuck in a small community on the island of Jersey. Salvation of a sorts offers itself in the form of Pascal, played by Johnny Flynn, but his dishy looks could hide a dark secret. I spoke to Michael in another mildly echoey conference room earlier this week. What's it like growing up on Jersey? Uh, it was actually, it was great. It was really, it was, it's a really safe place. Um, I've, I grew up on the west of the island, so I was really close to the beaches there. I mean, you're never that far from a beach in Jersey. Um, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's really scenic and beautiful and it's quite quaint. Um, so, yeah, I had a great childhood. By the time I was, a, was about 16, though, I really wanted to escape. And I had that, you know, when you kind of, you rebel against the place, you know, where you're from. If that, you know, in my case, it was a small island, but it could have been a small town where you just feel like it has nothing to offer you. There's, you know, there was no, you know, cinema culture, obviously, there or art or big music scene. So I, re I kind of, when I went to university, I kind of turned my back on the island. And it was only through making the film that I kind of fell in love with it again. Captivity. Some go insane. There is speculation that the disappearance is connected to the unsolved murders of three other girls over the past four years. In some way, because the, the film was originally inspired or loosely inspired by a, a true crime case that actually made quite a big impact on my childhood and imagination when I grew up, even though it was 10, 10 or 20 years after those crimes happened. Um, but a way to sort of bridge the gap 
and not just do a kind of yeah like a straight genre film was to mine my own impressions of the island both good and bad you know so the the sense of freedom I felt that there was and yeah that landscape and it being the site of a romance and you know I could go back to my experiences but equally yeah the feel the feeling that I was yeah a bit um, imprisoned on the island it's you know I was I mean these I heightened them a lot through you know amplified them through the sort of archetypes of like fairy tales um but yeah definitely that feeling of wanting to escape uh and then also that you would you know you'd have these yeah it's a very affluent island and you know uh, all the hedges are like neatly trimmed and um but it's also yeah it's it was that contradiction i suppose of feeling that i had and how incongruous it was to have this island that seemed very safe and very quaint but you had these crimes that were committed there and also you'd have yeah these uh it seemed every family seemed very wholesome but sometimes when i went into a friend's house i could i could also see something that i that was very different to my family and uh you know lots of families are dysfunctional and so i was really i was interested in all of that and yeah exploring those yeah those contradictory feelings you're wounded i can face that did you have like a a prince or princess charming, not necessarily romantically, but a character like Pascal in your life that made you feel like you were more than where you were stuck? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know. I think I've riffed off of a few friends. Uh, I haven't told them this, but a bit of my dad. <laughs> my dad used to go and shoot rabbits on the golf course, which is where I got uh, that from Pascal. And he's, quite, he's got quite an irreverent uh, sense of humour. Uh, but he was also part of that kind of established world that I didn't respond to so much. Like he, the, for example, going back to your previous question about whether anything that kind of more directly mirrored my own experience. Like I, I was kicked out of a golf club for wearing black jeans, and this was when I was like eight or nine years old. And I thought I thought that was such a cruel thing to do to a kid. <laughs> I mean, even when I was yeah, I, mean, I suppose I was nine years old. I thought that's so strange to do, that. and I had to like leave. And I wanted to like pick up this golf club that I saw and like smash it into the ground. That kind of, yeah, that I had that feeling. And it was an opportunity in the film to sort of have that moment. Sweetheart, you can't just change the rules because someone's shown an interest. Maybe I've been too soft on you. You're a good person, love. You don't know me. I know that people make mistakes. In some ways, a film is about a woman that has to re-engage with her animal instincts to escape the prison that she's found herself in. And that's a positive thing to a certain degree because she's kind of abolished that side of herself, you know, and that side of yourself can also contain, let's say, negative emotions as well, you know. Uh, but they, yeah, but then that's, it's not like a, just a, a, I don't want it to be a simplistic endorsement of like, that's also filled with, you know, lots of, that's dangerous as well if you just engage with yourself on, on that way. And I suppose it's like, yeah, the the question in the film is how to, how everyone has to navigate through that in their own particular way, like in terms of how much of your morality you take on board, your super ego, and how much you just sort of listen to your, your body and let that guide you. It might be on the film set itself where that balance plays out a little bit as well, though I imagine, like particularly with a first-time director who's, who's had funding from companies to help make this film, 
you um you're, the, your kind of artistic instinct is i imagine having to be domesticated a little bit just by sheer things like schedule or having to shoot things under a certain budget in a certain time and we already spoke before we started recording about the kind of the old-fashioned auteur and how they felt a little perhaps wilder and freer to be more artistically themselves. I mean, how are you dealing with that so far, that feeling that you're working with somebody else's money and somebody else's time? I mean, it's, in some ways it feels... I mean, also, though, the, the BFI and Film 4, you know, and other public funders in the UK, they there's not, like, a big financial imperative at least for your first films to you don't they're not they're never going to force me to cast a particular actor because they're going to you know it's easier to sell that movie they were very behind working with you know just for jesse it was her first film role you know they do want they if anything they're encouraging you to make the most interesting version of your film and they don't want it to be compromised i almost think it's you're going to be more compromised within the you know working within the market because there are more imperatives there to because your film's definitely got to sell and it's definitely got to make money. So I didn't I didn't I, I didn't feel uh, yeah uh, any pressure to sort of uh, soften any aspect of it. Um, that never really if anything maybe it was the opposite that they were encouraging me to like pursue uh, certain ideas that were like latent in the script and they thought were like yeah that, yeah encouraging me to like d- dig into the deepest versions of those those themes. I suppose I did engage with it in terms of it being a genre film. Like, for me, genre used to be a kind of dirty word when I was at film school. Not because of the culture of the film school, just for me, I was like a real film snob. Right. I was the guy watching, like, you know, the Bella Tars most, you know, obscure movie. <laughs> like, watch Satan Tango once a month. And I, it was, I really just couldn't understand why, you know, genre films were an interesting way to do it. And it was only after sort of, yeah, graduating and then and looking at the terrain of the film industry and I thought, wow, it's really hard for art house cinema. Um, And then it was at that same time that I looked back at a lot of 70s films, the films that kind of made me sort of want to be a director, like, you know, Chinatown and Dog Day Afternoon and The Godfather and The Conversation. And and I realised all of these movies that we call auteur films, they're kind of elevated genre films. Um, and then I kind of, yeah, I became much more accustomed to it and I saw it could be, my, my analogy that I gave someone recently is that genre it can just be like a guitar amp. You know, you can still write a beautiful uh, character-focused folk song, but by you know doing it within a genre story format, you, you're like plugging into a guitar amp, so you're going from folk to rock. I'm not who I say I am. I know you understand. Because we're the same. Beast, supported by the BFI's Film Fund, is released in the UK on April 27th. And that is it for this episode. We've rounded up all the wild stuff and brought it kicking and squealing to heel. You can find out more about the British Film Institute at bfi.org.uk and more about this podcast on our SoundCloud page. We're on Apple Podcasts, so do please give us a rating and review there as well. Notes, suggestions, statements of intent to me on Twitter, I'm at Henry H. Barnes, or via email henry.barnes at bfi.org.uk. The BFI podcast is written, recorded, presented and edited by me, and occasionally it shows. Thanks for listening, and until next time, no, still not got one.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.